Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Driving to the Basket. I am Mike, joined today by my guest, Brady Fredrickson of Detroit Bad Boys. Brady, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, man. I'm very excited to be here. All right, so let's talk Pistons. The season is over. It's going to be actually a little bit over six months again, I think, until we see the Pistons hit the floor for a regular season game again. It was not the season, I think, that either of us or any Pistons fan was hoping for, but there was some good to go along with the bad. So uh, just to kick it off, how did this season go versus your expectations? Yeah, no, uh, to your first point, I think I think it's a period of time. It's a little break that I think uh, all of us as fans could use a few months of not having to watch these guys play, <laughs> as, as fun as it might be at times. But um, yeah, no, it was definitely... Definitely tilted early. Um, you know, I was of the belief that, you know, when the, the Vegas win line came out where it was like 29 and a half wins, I was like, oh, yeah, they can win 30 games. I, I, I for sure can see that. And, you know, I was big, 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 big. Cade Cunningham can be a star starting now type of person at the start. And I still believe that. But obviously, uh, you know, him going down so early really torpedoed the whole thing. And I think, uh, you know, as we went through, it was just a lot of a lot of painful production in terms of like seeing guys get better, but like individual improvement versus team cohesiveness. It just was never on the same page. You never, there was never a time this season that you looked at the Pistons and you said, wow, the young guys are playing really good and the team's actually playing pretty darn well too. Like it just never found the right time. And that was probably the biggest disappointment for me in terms of watching 82 games where they only won 17 was just, you never found a time where it was like, they're figuring this out. Yeah, I hear you. It was definitely a broken season. Completely agree with what you said about Cade, that the season took on an entirely different character. I was I was excited in the same way. I mean, it seems like we're both very high on Cade's potential, and I thought, you know, he's going to come back, and, you know, he's he's going to be great. You know, we're really going to see big things from Cade, and I think that was, that was for me, the, the thing I was most excited for. I was excited for Ivy. I was excited for Duran. But once Cade went down, the season really changed, and it kind of became... And, you know, okay, what can we milk out of the season? I thought the Pistons were going were gonna to win 31 games, like given good health. Uh, do you think, like, if Cade Cunningham, like knowing what we know about the team right now, if Cade Cunningham had been healthy, do you think that this team would have won in the realm of 30 games? No, I think they would have been very similar to what they were last year with like 24, 25 wins. Um, I think he covers up a lot of... Uh, a lot of the bad things, I don't think, you know, people will point to their offense and say, well, they scored 118 points per game. And that's true. Um, but I think you look at the way that their offense worked and, you know, a lot of times there were turnovers that just killed them. And when they needed baskets late in games, they they couldn't find those baskets. Even when they were playing Alec Burks and Boyan Bogdanovich, they just weren't able to create those looks when defense was really locked in. And I think he would have helped in that respect. And I think just in terms of, you know, Cade turns the ball over, don't get me wrong, but I think the offense is a little bit less chaotic if he's out there. Mm-hmm. It's not Ivy and Killian Hayes trying to do it. But I think in general, um, you know, it was it was never going to be what we expected. And it was no fault of Cade Cunningham's injury. It was mostly just if you look at the way this team was constructed in the the caliber of defense it was capable of. I don't think that was oh, ever yes. going to be as good as we not expected, but as it needed to be even to get to 30 wins. Yeah, this team was not built to play defense, this roster. I mean, my feeling a few months into the season, and this was after Kate had gone down, was that, you know what, this team has, you know, has some pieces. You know, it's got a good start on the rebuild between, you know, especially Kate and, and Ivy and Duran. But in its current state, 
you know, in, in terms of the progress in the rebuild, but also just where the roster currently is, is like a horribly incomplete. And definitely this roster absolutely could not play defense. Like when I saw it at the start of the season that they were going to trot out a lineup of Cade, Ivy, Sadiq Bey, Boyan, and Isaiah Stewart, I was like, this is not going to end well. <laughs> no, that's that's true. I think it's funny that we you can look back at um, you know that first two weeks of the season or even the week before the season and like, you know, everybody was mostly complaining or debating about, well, can we play Sadiq Bey and Bogdanovich together? And like, you know, turns out, no, we couldn't have. Uh, the team did not look good with either of them, you know, manning that power forward spot. But I think, uh, you know, even as the season progressed, um, you know, I don't think either of those guys ever stood a chance defensively. And I think Sadiq Bey, obviously, I think we know he's a hard worker. Um, he really improved his offensive game a lot, but I think the majority of his time off the cart was put towards that side of the ball because he never really made those strides defensively that he needed to. Um, and, you know, the same thing with Bogdanovich. Obviously, we know he can score. We know he can shoot. And people will say, you know, hey, he's actually a good defender when the games matter and when he cares. But unfortunately, here the games didn't matter. And, uh, you know, he didn't have a guy like Rudy Gobert that would clean up all of his mistakes. So, you know, I think the critical oversight we as the fans had before the season was mainly, you know, expecting those two to be able to fill such a large role when in reality they just, you know, they aren't capable of doing those things and that kind of was a big deal <laughs> once we got playing the games yeah it was an issue definitely I mean Sadiq took a I feel like took a huge step back on defense and of course Boyan has his well known he's a very talented scorer you know we'll, we'll talk about him a bit later uh he, he was I, I thought was really impressive on offense but when it came to the defensive side of things of course he's just never been good and right. he was one of he was he was one of those very well highlighted liabilities for those jazz playoff teams that last season and the season before flamed out on defense. So also put the two of those together and the fact that Isaiah Stewart, who is a very, I feel like a very strong defender, a very strong interior defender, when you have decent perimeter defenders around him, uh, when the perimeter defense is just crewed by sieves, you know, and in Boyan and Bay and in Ivy was, you know, he improved somewhat, but the general in general had a, had a really tough defensive season. Stewart can't both reposition and contest. So if, if guys are just getting through like it's Swiss cheese, I mean, even, you know, Stewart had his issues on defense. He really wasn't able to make it work. And yeah, I think that's yeah. the, that's the thing that you look at with, I, I, th I think I've seen people, you know, mention, you know, how good Sadiq Bey has been in Atlanta in terms of shooting the ball in his role. And, you know, you look at any player when they're not in this situation in the environment they are here and, you know, they're going to be better. Any player, Cade Cunningham will be better on 28 other teams because they are not as lost and broken as this team is in terms of how it's structured and stuff. So, you know, I think it's hard to judge and evaluate guys purely on what they do for the Pistons because you don't know what they would look like in a better, more competitive environment. But I think, uh, yeah, you as you pointed out, I mean, there's, there's strengths and there's weaknesses, and some guys have much more glaring weaknesses than others. Yeah, definitely. And Sadiq, who knows? I mean, in Atlanta, this may have just been a wake-up call for him. I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about kind of the good and the bad of the season here. Sadiq's obviously would fall into the latter category. I know that he was very, you know, it was, it was a very disappointing thing for a lot of Pistons fans. A lot of us had high hopes. I mean, I thought, I mean, mine probably weren't quite as high. I thought that Sadiq would have topped off and maybe fourth best guy in a championship team. Fourth best guy in a championship team is a very good player. And just to see him completely collapse on defense and kind of turn a little bit dumb on offense was very disappointing. 
may have just been a wake up call to him in Atlanta. Like, you know, this isn't going to fly, but it's a shame it didn't work out with the Pistons. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the the first season, you know, he he really did a lot of things that impressed people. And then obviously the 50 point game last year was, you know, impressive in a vacuum on its own right. But I think when when I looked at it, just I was never the biggest guy for him. I mean, I thought he was a valuable starter on that 2020-21 team. Um, but I think as he, as he tried to like expand his game, on one hand, yes, it's good that you're trying to do new things. On the other hand, like what happened to the things that you were actually good at? And so, you know, for me, I think it's it's people have always known or at least, you know, seen that when he is a 3 and D shooter, I say the D part lately, but a three-point shooter, he is maximized the best. And I think Atlanta, when you've got good big men, three good big men, two good guards, another good wing. I mean, he's the, what, the seventh best player on that team. So it's like, you know, there's no pressure on him to do anything but what he's good at. And I think maybe he was a guy in Detroit, especially with Kate out, who was like, well, I need to do more. We need more from me. And, and, and whether that's true or not, you know, the reality is he wasn't good enough to fill that role. No, I, I like the impression that I got was that he wanted to fill that role. I mean, Dwayne Casey came out with a uh, thoughts, pretty poignant statement about how when you bring young players into the league, you know, they, they don't want to act within the role that you give them. A lot of them, you know, they want to go out and be the best player in the world. And of course, the vast majority of players in the league are role players. So just based on what happened and, and based on some of the reporting around the situation, uh, it almost sounded as if Sadiq was going a little bit rogue. Just what he wanted to do was beat us off the dribble score, whereas the team wanted him to just be a large, largely a three-point guy. I mean, my opinion from his rookie season was, you know, the next frontier for Sadiq Bey is shooting motion threes. If he's a guy who can attack off the dribble, what a bit great. But it seemed like he really was styling himself this guy who was really going to be a high-usage attacker, and that just wasn't working out. Yeah, no, that's all, that's all fair points on him too, I think, there. And, and, you know, the last thing I have on him is just that, you know, I think when he was traded, you know, a lot of the, the dirty laundry was aired in ways about, like you said, his, uh, you know, his nature of wanting to be the guy and do those things. And, you know, I think this is something that even goes back to uh, the game in Golden State, actually, in January when he hit uh, that buzzer beater, which was great. But I think after the game, he like openly admitted that the play was not for him, but he really wanted to shoot that ball, which is like very fun and precocious and whatever when you win but if that shot doesn't go in that's just a critical like failure by a player being selfish so you know i'm I, I'm, I'm sure he'll be able to fit his role well with all those alpha dogs they have in atlanta mm-hmm. yeah on a team that i don't think is probably very likely going anywhere it seemed like a very mid team but we'll see yeah i wish him the best i mean speaking of shots like that do you remember oh, i'd be surprised if you didn't remember this uh this was back in probably February of 2017 in, in the midst of that like nightmare 2016, 2017 season. And Reggie Jackson, who back then was kind of like an egomaniac. Uh, the Pistons were playing against the Celtics. The game was close. KCP had been the clutch star. Reggie Jackson brings the ball up the court. The Pistons are up to like 15 seconds left in the shot clock and he takes a deep three and misses. I don't know if you remember that. It sounds familiar because that was a Reggie Jackson staple, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he missed, and the and the Celtics got the ball back and ended up winning the game. And um, yeah, I guess I don't know why I said that. You probably remember this. I remember all sorts of completely inconsequential details. It's not a very useful skill. It's hard. <laughs> but, it's hard. It's hard for me to. It's hard for me to to, to separate my uh, my emotions with Reggie Jackson because I was I was one of the very big Reggie Jackson stands for a long time there. Oh, really? 
<clears throat> yeah, I I thought by the end of his tenure with the Pistons, I really liked the guy. I thought he'd become just the model teammate and an absolute professional. And in his first couple of years with the Pistons, I wasn't as big of a fan. But basically, it was the same sort of thing. Like if he'd made the shot, he would have been the hero. Um, but instead, it was just a bad shot. If Sadiq had missed that shot, <laughs> like you said, it wouldn't have been quite as fun of a story. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a disappointing storyline of the season. And yeah, I, I wish him the best in Atlanta. Uh, in any event, moving on to the next big subject, of course, we found this out. It was going to be speculation into the offseason. What was Dwayne Casey going to do in the event? It took about, I don't know, what was it, like 15 minutes uh, until he fired himself. So Dwayne Casey is out as head coach of the Detroit Pistons. He's moving into a front office role. How do you feel about that? I think it's fine. I think uh, I understand the people who were very angry with his performance. Um, I think that winning 17 games is pathetic, no matter if you're trying to lose or not, because the number of teams that have won, you know, I mean, they were one game away from being the worst team ever. And, you know, <laughs> that that season drove Dick Vitale away from coaching forever. That's how bad that that's how bad it is to win 16 games. So like, you know, I understand that stuff. I think, you know, the one thing I will, you know, give him credit for is I think a lot of guys did develop to some expect, to some respect underneath of him. Obviously not as much as we'd hope. It was kind of middling development a lot of times. But um, the other part of it is just I, I always look at the Pistons in Houston kind of as a yin and a yang in terms of like teams that are heavily rebuilding right now. And I think Houston is doing it one way where they had a superstar, they traded him, they have all these picks, they get all this talent, and they should be far and away better than the Pistons by now. But the Pistons with less are <laughs> the same, I suppose. But the big difference is Casey never let the locker room and the culture and everything they have devolve into the shit show that you see with Houston, where it's just like yeah, John Wall's out there talking stuff. You know, you see video of this guy, you know, making fun of Steven Silas, who's already gotten, you know, clipped over there. So like all these different things where it's just like, it seems like there's little problems. And even today, I don't know if you saw the video, there's a video of uh, Raphael Stone, their GM trying to defend their culture and you know he's kind of defensive because he said it's the greatest culture he's been around since he's been in the league since 2003 <laughs> so it's just like there's all there's there's ways that this can get this could be much worse and so that is one spot where i think i will give him credit and i think you know being in the front office that should be good to 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 give him you know a chance to still you know coach these guys be a mentor to them because i think a lot of the guys do respect the hell out of him so that's that's worth noting too yeah, I absolutely agree. It seemed like he is a great locker room commander and his players all like him. And running a locker room, they're keeping it healthy and, and keeping the players happy. And it seemed like, like you said, we never heard any whispers even of discontent out of the Pistons locker room. No. Across the course of three really bad seasons in which I think the Pistons, in terms of winning at least, and it's not easy for players to lose that many games. And there was a lot of young players as well, and that can be difficult to manage too. Though I think that Troy Weaver really put an emphasis on on drafting and bringing in players who had the right character, and that helped. But I think the Pistons won a total of con considerably less than 60 games over the course of three seasons. So, yeah, he did a great job there. And in terms of his player development, I mean, that's harder to see. But by all accounts, he, you know, he was an effective coach in that respect too. As an on-court coach, I was very much ready to be done with him. Of course, I was ready to be done with him before he even became the coach of the Pistons. I remember in 2015 watching game four of the Raptors versus Wizards series, the third-seeded Raptors, watching game four when they got obliterated and swept, and that was the end of the season, and thinking, man, they got, got to get rid of Casey. This guy is a really good floor raiser, but he puts a ceiling on your team. And then three years later, I don't want this guy as the coach. <laughs> so props to him. He, he seems like a great guy. 
and his players liked him, and, and it seems like he was good for this team through this phase. But I kind of I feel like it was time to move on. Awesome, yeah. No, I think uh, you know I think that it was the right time to move on. I think this team and its process was always going to be, you know, when it was time to start winning, it was not going to be you know long term with Dwayne Casey. I think I thought maybe they would give him a chance to kind of reward him for being the good soldier during the uh, you know the bad years to maybe take that first swing at it. Um, but at the same time, I think after the way this year went, I'm sure that combined with the just sheer amount of time this is taking in terms of going into year four um, and having not even sniffed 30 wins, I think, uh, you know, Troy Weaver saw the opportunity to, you know, go out, find his guy. Maybe it's because his guy happens to be open and available right now. And maybe he won't be if they waited a year. Who knows? You know, we don't know any of that stuff. But I think there was obviously a rhyme and a reason. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's time for a new voice regardless. Yeah, I think even more than just a new voice. Well, the Pistons are planning on transitioning to winning. And I mean, in my opinion, Casey is a proven loser in terms of as a game. Let's put it this way. I think he's just a proven loser in the NBA, in the modern NBA, in terms of winning games. I think that his flaws started to become very evident, you know, long before he left the Toronto Raptors. And he was clutch for the Pistons in terms of losing games throughout this rebuild. I mean, I'll put it that way. The trouble is he wasn't doing it intentionally. He was just an exceptionally bad late game coach, you know, who just could not make the proper adjustments, which constantly lose control of games. We know that he's an awful postseason coach and so on and so forth. So I think that, I don't know if this was in Weaver's mind, if this was in the mind of Tom Goris, but we've heard that the Pistons really want to pivot next season to trying to win games. The focus is not going to be on development, on letting players play through mistakes. Even Casey said that. Even Casey said, you know, next season, this was maybe like, I think, three weeks ago. He said, next season, we're not going to let players play through these mistakes. So the focus is going to be on winning rather than development. And I think going for a coach who is more suited to that uh, was, was absolutely the right move. So it'll be interesting. Um, I, I don't like I tend to shy away from uh, from talking about topics I don't feel like I can possibly be expert on. And, and things can just really come out of left field when it comes to coaches. So I haven't really thought about whom the Pistons might hire. Have you? Yeah, I think a lot of the names I've seen mentioned are interesting. I think I really haven't sat down and thought too deeply about it. I think, uh, you know, Jerry Stackhouse is the one that, that I've been, um, you know, I've talked about with the guys at DBB and stuff and just because I think it's an interesting thing. And I think I've heard, you know, from just reading uh, college basketball stories that he is a guy who is very good with the X's and O's, but is not um, – really about the other parts of college basketball, which are recruiting and things like that. So, you know, in the NBA, you get to, uh, you know, avoid those types of things and stuff. Um, but again, I think, you know, and he's got experience too in the G League winning a title there, and he's been an assistant in the NBA. So, like, he's not your traditional, like, you know, I've seen people mention Jay Wright, and, like, Jay Wright's a pure college coach. He's a good coach. But, um, you know, that's a guy who's never been in the NBA. But I think overall, I mean, there's the Udoka thing. I, I think that... The timing of Casey leaving now with Yudoka being available, I don't know that there's a coincidence that that's a coincidence or if that's intentional, but it certainly is a connection I've thought about. And, you know, say what you will about his personal conduct, but I think, uh, you know, professionally, he's a hell of a coach and he's interviewed with the Pistons before. So obviously, I think the front office in Gores has been, you know, has talked to him before. And then I think the other guy that really sticks out to me is Charles Lee, who is mm -hmm. a younger guy. Uh, he'd be a first-time head coach, but he's been, you know, kind of Mike Budenholzer's right-hand man for years and years and years, and he dates back to, uh, you know, playing for the Spurs, so he's got, like, the pop connection there and stuff. So, like, 
I think that's an interesting one if they want to go that way and find a young coach to grow with the team. Mm-hmm. But they haven't done that since 2013 or 14, whenever they got – or no, more than that. Whenever they had John Kuster was the last first-time coach. So I'd be surprised if they did that, but that might be the move, you know? I think it's the move, definitely, uh, in my opinion. I wouldn't go with the retread. I don't know if – I wouldn't necessarily consider Udoka – Udoka, excuse me, a retread. I just wonder if he's touchable at this point. I remember that the Nets were considering hiring him and the press around it was so bad that they just kind of quietly gave up and hired somebody else, went for Vaughn instead. So it, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, definitely. Certainly, no. I think he's, yeah, I think that's the other part is I think, I think it's one of those things where he as a guy, I think has to, to rehab that reputation more. And I, I would be surprised, you know, he did lead the Celtics to the finals and they were what, like two games from a championship, but yeah. You know, at the same time, most times you really have to earn your way back in and you have to kind of grind as an assistant again. So he might have to take that route. I don't know. You know, it doesn't seem like teams are viewing it that way, but that's kind of what I would always assume is the natural way is, you know, when a coach gets fired, if they want a second job, they got to go kind of earn that that trust again. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, all right. So let's move on to break down how this season went. And we're just going to make it an exercise, the good and, and the bad. And we'll just alternate good, bad, good, bad here. So I think. The number one good, you know, aside from, well, this kind of exists in parallel. Number one, I mean, basically the Pistons had a tough season. And if you if you want to be bad, you want to be the worst team. And the Pistons did succeed in being the worst team. So they can drop no further than five. But unfortunately, thanks to the process Sixers, they don't have the highest chance now of all teams of winning the first overall pick. That is what it is. Uh, but the primary good, I think, that came out of this season, the most exciting part of it for me was Jaden Ivey's development. Yeah, I know. I mean, I agree with you. I was... That Jaden Ivey was the singular surprise for me. You know, I keep these tiers leading up to the draft just to keep track of how I feel about guys and so I don't get caught up in the the hubbub as we get closer to the draft. But he was a guy who steadily rised and was firmly like a tier two guy for me below Chet, Paulo, and Jabari. And and I think, you know, he, he lived up to that anthem for me because I wasn't expecting him to show what he showed. You know, I saw the the negatives about how he wasn't a point guard and he didn't have that kind of in-between mid-range game. And, and he really squashed those concerns as we went through the season. And I think, you know, he had this like definitively upward trajectory from game one to game 82. And that was super um, exciting. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter for his long-term potential, but it's always fun when you see a guy who is able to just with his play alone, you know, shut up his critics, whether they are like fair critics or unfair critics. And he was able to just kind of unite everyone into the, singular belief that this guy is a player and he's going to be good and so i think that was arguably the only bright spot you know outside of jalen Duran that came from this season yeah it's not in my experience it's not common to see a player come in as raw as Jaden ivy was because he came in pretty raw and makes such a degree of progress over the course of the season like i had similar concerns as you did uh, about you know, his ability to make the right reads and passes and his willingness to make the right reads and passes. I was like, is this guy going to be somebody who really has to operate on the ball, but can't really make it work in terms of just making those passes, making the right decisions? Is he going to be willing to do it? Uh, his shooting, his drive game, I thought his drive game, he was going to have to refine his shooting, his consistency, and his in-between game as well, which was non-existent at Purdue. And he really made a lot of progress in, the, in a lot of those areas. Still needs to work in the drive game you know, just really planning it out a little bit better so he can use that fabulous athleticism of his to get to the basket. But his shooting really improved, you know, in terms of his consistency, especially down the stretch and just his shot form, which 
like last game against the Bulls, this is a really simple play, but he just he caught a pass and uh, at the three point line, and he took a really good looking jumper, and it was like wow. The beginning of the season, like his his legs would have been flopping around, <laughs> and just his growth as a playmaker, I think still think is going to top off as a secondary playmaker, but that's fine. Uh, and, and just in terms of what he showed that he, he'd be able to do off the ball, just in his potential fit with Cade, and man, the guy's a hard worker, like a super hard worker who's very dedicated to improving. He lives up to that 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 old saying of like a coach's son. I mean, he definitely is that type of dude. And obviously his mom's a great coach at Notre Dame. Um, you know, but I think the main thing to your point is that, yeah, he his decision-making went from, you know, being very forceful in terms of forcing things to being very react, like to being aggressive without being like that aggressive. You know, he mm-hmm. got to his spots. He knew what he wanted to do with the ball. He wasn't just trying. Because I think at Purdue, a lot of times, if you watch the way that they played, he kind of was just so overwhelming physically to guys that they couldn't keep up with him. And it, you saw yeah. that a lot this season against, you know, obviously the best of the best too. But I think, um, yeah, I think he's just gotten a lot smarter. Like his basketball IQ and his feel for the game got better, which again, I give credit to Casey on that one because it's it's not like just playing against better competition for 82 Knights is going to just do that automatically. So, I mean, it was good, and I think the shooting was a lot better than expected. The mid-range game was better than expected. The defense sucked, but so did everybody else's, so I can't be super critical of that yet. <laughs> yeah. And the one thing that we think about, and I've said this before in places, is that you know it's great when guys do well, but I have to be able to think of you doing well in the context of Cade Cunningham being on the floor for me to believe you can be a piece of oh, this yeah. puzzle. And so like mm-hmm. we saw at the start of the season, the games where Cade played, Jaden Ivey was very good, and he was very efficient. And he was able to kind of feed off of him and be that second guy. He doesn't need to be the alpha guy. Whereas I think other guys in this team, another point guard in this team only plays well when he is the guy. So I think that's a good thing too. I think that's, that's, that shows that he's able to be the Robin Cade's Batman in that backcourt too. Yeah, that was going to be essential. Absolutely. Fit with Cade was a big consideration for me doing draft analysis last year uh, for anybody. Like my opinion was that, and uh, I still hold to this, that Paulo would not have been a very good fit with Cade. Um, and uh, the reason that I had Matherin as 1A over over Ivy, who was my 1B, was because whereas I thought that Matherin's ceiling was not as high as Ivy's, I thought that just in terms of fit, with Matherin projecting as a strong off-ball player, he stood a better chance of providing the same value. And Ivy really is, uh, this season really dispelled that concern for me in terms of his fit with Cade. He is, you know, significantly improved as a shooter. He's even shown some motion three points potential, which was entirely unexpected for me. He's a very aggressive off-ball mover. You know, he's he's just he's shown a lot more off the ball. He's he's also just he's very willing to play the role that is asked of him. I was afraid he was going to come in and be this guy who's like, I want to be the dude and just attack the basket on every play. Yeah, no, I thought that too, and I thought that it would be a rough transition for him to go from being the guy at Purdue to to being that guy, and he you know, just showed his his ability to fit the role. And I think, um, you know, that's one thing, and I don't want to get ahead of the our, you know, ourselves here, but I'm, that's just one thing where if, you know, the lottery balls fall the wrong way and the Pistons get the second pick, I think that he, Scoot Henderson and Cade could work as well because of the things we just talked about with his, you know, malleability in terms of filling whatever role. But in general, mm-hmm. I really just think like offensively, you know, what he was showing there at the end, you know, that Chicago game aside where he really struggled, but the last 10 games or so, I think if you take that guy and you put him with 
the guy that Cade was at the end of last year, I think you've got a backcourt that, you know, offensively is in the top half of the league. Yeah, I'm hopeful, definitely. It helps that they seem to really like each other, like genuinely like each other, which is cool. And But, I mean, Ivy just, he turned out, and like, like I said, Ivy, excuse me, Weaver really drafts for character. But I didn't expect Ivy to come in and just be this, like such like a good kid, I'll put it that way. Just like really working hard to solve really whatever struggles he was having and, and to do them and to make the right play and to do the right thing for the team. And then said all the right things in his, uh, in his exit interview with the, well, not exit interview, his interview with the press today, players doing kind of um, end of season press conference. So yeah, it was, it was just great to see. And when I, when my excitement was really finally sealed was that game against Miami, when he just put a lot together against a very good defense, like against Milwaukee, it's like, okay, cool. That's exciting. But you're playing against a Bucks team that is missing like one of the most dominant defensive players ever. And also it's like all defensive caliber point guard who would have been guarding you. But Miami is a very good defensive team. And that was just a very impressive game. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, just the, even the one against, uh, you know, the next night against Brooklyn too. I mean, 23 points and 10 assists there. I mean, you know, the assist numbers at the end there, him being able to, you know, maybe he wasn't the perfect point guard, but it, it's not, you don't luck into you know, eight, nine, 10 assists. That's, that's not something that everybody can do. I think that's one thing that when we look at basketball, we look at the guys, the caliber of players the Pistons have, a bad team has, you know, judge them on their own right. Because it's not like when we watch LeBron or KD or Luca, where it's like, oh, he gets 10 assists every night. It's not that hard. No, it's, it's really hard. And like, especially for rookies to go out there and do that. And that's to me what sets Ivy apart from Matherin because I'm with you. I thought he'd be a great fit next to Kate. I loved his mentality. He's just like wants to go out there and rip your head off, which is great. Matherin, that is. Um, but I, he doesn't do anything else. He rebounds the ball sometimes. He's not a creator. He's not a great shooter. He did not shoot well at all this year, which I thought would be his strong suit, specifically from three. So I, th- I think he's going to be a really good player. I think he's going to be a great scorer. I don't know that he's going to really change the trajectory of your team. But I think every team could use a player like Ben Matherin. So, you know, that's a win in itself, but it's not what you want with the top five, six, seven pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm really looking forward. And this is one of the things, like you said, yeah, you know, it's nice to have a break perhaps from what turned into a very grueling season. At the same time, <laughs> it's like, darn, man, it's going to be six months until we see Jaden Ivey and Kate Cunningham play together. And this is another thing about the Casey issue. I don't think Casey really has the imagination as an offensive coach to run two handlers together like that. Like he's really bad at running two handlers together and at just getting the most out of his players on offense period. So I'm excited to have a new coach who's actually going to be able to exploit what these two can do together. Definitely. Yeah. So Jaden Ivy. Yeah. I think we both agree that the number one bright spot of this season. So there's one good. Let's move on to one bad, the injuries, otherwise known as Cade Cunningham. <laughs> I mean, we already talked about that a bit. Uh, the injury bug hit the team pretty hard this year. Not just Cade, also Isaiah Stewart. Isaiah Livers missed a bunch of games. I mean, his settlement is necessarily even very relevant, but even you know the likes of Hamadou Diallo missed quite a bit of time. And I don't know how much there really there is to say about this, but it was something that that happened that had nothing to do with the character of the team, and that really kind of put a damper on the season. I think that injuries are a thing that every team deals with. Um, and I think if you're in a different position than the Pistons were in. Maybe you handle those injuries differently. I don't think Isaiah Stewart needed to sit out the entire season. Um, you know, I think even Cade Cunningham, I believe his window to return would have been like late March. So like if they were playing for something of consequence, I would have imagined he'd be back. He wouldn't have sat out the whole year, obviously, because he's 
you know, competitor like that. And even Diallo, I mean, you know, I think his injury was kind of a freak thing. And he's an Iron Man who is a guy who probably won't be back, who Agreed. you know, probably probably isn't on your list of people to talk about. But I I really came around as a big fan of him by the end. I just think that, you know, you talk about we talked about with Sadiq Bay, but some guys it takes a while to accept their role. And I think Hami really found what makes him good and he leaned right into it. And I think guys who do that, the faster you do that, especially when you're not a star or someone who has the draft pedigree of a star, the faster you will get money and playing time and, you know, you'll, you'll be noticed. So, you know, props to him, obviously for that, you know, he was really good for them for long stretches and, you know, I think he's going to go out there, he's going to get paid and I hope he does well wherever he goes. Cause you know, I think he could be, a good player for the Pistons in a world where they don't have Victor Wembanyama, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a different discussion. I think we should have another time because I'm I'm not quite as high on Diallo with in his current state of development with no shot. I mean, I was very high in terms of what, what I thought he could be at the NBA level if he could shoot, but he didn't. You know, he just hasn't made any progress. But yeah, definitely, definitely a discussion I'd like to have with you uh, on, on another <laughs> episode, hopefully in the future. So. Uh, let's move on to the uh, the next good. You already mentioned him, Jalen Duran. Yeah, I mean, a guy who I had very low expectations for did not, you know, I wasn't super, I didn't watch a lot of Memphis until the tournament last year. So, you know, I saw what he was able to do and I thought that he kind of underperformed based on the competition he was playing because the American Conference was not that great last year compared to what it was this year, for example. But, um, you know, he was a guy who came in, had some flashy moments in Summer League, and I was like, okay, he has some some ability. This could be good. Um, but man, I just think the the stuff that guys have said about him. I mean, Paul George was heaping praise on him the other day on his podcast, and yeah, you know, in general, he's gotten a lot of pub. I think he's for being the youngest player in the NBA. I think he exceeded all the expectations, and I mean, just showed you a flash of what he could do every game. And while maybe he's not ready to be like, you know, the this the defensive anchor of a team i think he was getting better at that but that was really a struggle for him i think the offense the finishing on the rim the the rim running the rebounding everything that he showed for being 19 is really good and i think that he is firmly like that number three guy the one of the three guys in this roster that i feel confident are you know going to be here for the long haul yeah i was impressed as well i mean he definitely was raw to a degree and stayed raw but the guy is, and again, just another example of Troy Weaver really focusing on character. There were some questions at Memphis, like, does this guy, you know, does he stay engaged? Does he work hard? Not like sort of Andre Drummond pre-draft concerns. This It wasn't like, does he care enough about basketball? That was never the question. But it's like, is this guy able to stay engaged? Is he going to work hard at all times? And he really worked hard. And And like Ivy, it seemed like he really focused on the areas he was given to improve. And I, yeah, I think that he's, he's definitely got top 10 center potential. And yeah, it's funny yeah. that the guys who are big like that, that it's just the big guys. And I understand the like reason for it, but it's funny that when people give that, like, does he care enough? Does he want to put the work in kind of thing? It's always the big men, which has just always been interesting to me. I guess it's because, you know, not all big men were built, were, were, were made mentally to play basketball. They just were physically gifted the body, but that's true. Um, but I just, the, the, you know, it's just to play off that real quick. I mean, his talk about the body. I mean, he was built for basketball from day one of arriving here, which is oh, yeah. you know probably the reason he was able to adjust so quickly, just because he didn't need to get in the weight room. He will still need to, but he was able to hold his own from day one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the team's going to want him to add any more muscle. I mean, like 6'10", 250. 
at his probably like 5% body fats. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you want to add any, any more mass than that. Like same with Isaiah Stewart, it might just slow you down. I mean, he can basically bang with anybody in the paint at this point, aside right. from like the possible exception of Jokic, whom, you know, aside from Joel Embiid, I'm not sure if there's anybody who can really, who can really keep Jokic in one place. Right. It was, it, it's amazing. Like, uh, I, I've mentioned this in the pod before. I've had the, you know, I've, I've been lucky to go sit courtside a couple times at Ball Arena when the Pistons have been in town. And Jokic can just body anybody out of the way. And mm-hmm. and I watched, like, Marvin Bagley was starting in that game. And I was like, okay, well, hopefully Durham will come in and things will go a little bit better. And, of course, things are only going to go better to a certain extent because it's Jokic right. who, who does things that should be impossible. But, uh, yeah, it's just to say that <laughs> he'll just take that, you know, that massive rear end of his and just pound, you know, and, and oh, that's not a good way of putting it. Uh, you know, pound or ram it and other guys is not really the, the verbiage I'm looking for. Basically, he'll just back you down really effectively, even if you're yeah. Isaiah Stewart and have a very low center of gravity and, or, you know, whatever the case. He yeah, knows how he, to throw his weight around, yes. He knows how to throw his weight around very effectively. So, but Duran, yeah, you're right, 100%, like absolutely physically ready for the NBA. And when I was looking at him in the, in the pre-draft days, and I thought, okay, this is a guy if the Pistons get a second pick, could be a good option as long as you believe in his development on offense. Because I thought he was going to be a very good defender, you know, who's who's got good instincts. Very well, his instincts he needs to work on, uh, but he's very switchable. He's very long. He can he can stay in a good defensive stance while uh, while moving laterally, even against faster players. Mm-hmm. And and he's highly athletic. Uh, as, as long as you believe in him, just being able to refine his offense, I thought then then he's a good pick. And I think he could be a top ten center as long as just that defensive decision-making. It's always a question about a player. It's a question you have a bigger question about like James Wiseman or Marvin Bagley. I believe for Duran that it's just that he's raw at this point, that, that he's having struggles with decision-making on offense, on defense rather. I think he gets those together. It could easily be like a top 10, maybe even top five defensive center. Yeah, he's got a massive ceiling and I can't wait to see how that develops with Kate out there because actually, you know, what's funny is Cade, Jaden Ivey, and Jalen Duran have yet to play on the floor at the same time in an NBA game. Really? Nope, they never did. They never got a chance to do it because they were bringing Durance along so slowly at the start. And they were juggling like all the different rotations. So that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out too. You know, I'm sure that will be the starting lineup next year. So we'll get to know right off the bat. But, uh, you know, that's yeah. another little fun tidbit. Yeah. And Jalen Duran, I mean, we both know Kate in particular lives in the high pick and roll. I mean, Ivy, you know, pick and roll is good for him. Not quite as good, but for Kate, it's super important. Jaden, uh, excuse me, Jalen Duran sets very hard screens. He rolls the basket hard. He's got really good verticality. And hopefully the next coach won't disdain vertical spacing like uh, like Dwayne Casey always has. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing he and TNK put it together. I feel like needs to work on his finishing in terms of laying the ball up. But uh, I, I'm excited. You know, I'm excited for his future, and I think he was a real bright spot. Um, but unfortunately, one of the other bigs on the roster we'll move on to next, uh, you know, when we go back to the, to the negative side of things, was Marvin Bagley. Who, who yeah. Kind of, yeah, he had, he had a fairly strong offensive end of the season with Cade, but things really didn't come together for him on either end this year. No, I think, uh, you know, I think the way they built this team, I think he's, you know, not for the long here, but I think, uh, you know, I was the guy who saw the value we had with Cade last year as like an, a, a lob threat and a vertical spacer and things. And I think that still exists. He has great chemistry with Cade, and I think uh, that's worth something. Um, but I just don't know that you need that guy especially if things go right and victor is on this team next year too i don't think that makes any sense and and you know people say i think his contract will be hard to trade at 13 million per year but i'm not really i don't believe that because if you look at the salaries of most nba guys 
like to get anything of value, you need to have big contracts to trade. You need to have money to move into someone else's cap space. And I think he offers enough basketball sense as an offensive scorer and player to be able to serve some value in a trade where you're bringing back a bigger salary. Um, and so I don't think he's like some poison pill. It's not like $13 million a year is anywhere near the unmovable amounts of money that a Rudy Gobert makes where it's like 55 million a year. Oh, that so, guy. <laughs> yeah, that's another story. Oh boy. So I don't know. I mean, I think, I think he's, I think Marvin's a player who has a, you know, is going to be a good stats, bad team guy for, for his whole career, unfortunately. Yeah. I think that like my opinion of Marvin is like, I don't think he's going to get there on defense. I, I think he's just one of those guys who just has a low IQ ceiling. And that that's always going to be a struggle point for him, and that he's never going to be able be able to play defense at center. I mean, he the, any time we've seen him on the floor at center on defense for Pistons, I mean, they've just gotten completely scourged. But like he came back this season, I really expected that over the summer, you know, the guy would have just put every single bit of time he could into expanding his offensive game, like particularly in shooting. I feel like he's a guy who needs to be a good shooter. He needs to provide good offensive value, and I feel like he came back and pretty much looked exactly the same as he did last season. And that was disappointing for me. Yeah, he was the same guy. I think that's kind of where he's at. I mean, he's young, but I think we've got enough of a sample size to know what he is. And, uh, you know, I, I made a joke that he splashed a couple threes down the stretch there against Chicago. And I was like, oh, he saved all of his threes for the last game of the year because I will, <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I know we made like 12, 13 this year. I, and I watch every game. I don't remember seeing any of them. They happened, but I don't. The, I, my eyes did not see them happen. So, you know, if he figures that out, obviously that changes his calculus entirely. But, you know, four years in and he's a, uh, you know, coming off a year where he shot sub 30% from three. I mean, you know, for that shot to matter, he's got to be at, at least 33, 34%, which is a gigantic increase. And, you know, the other thing too, I think is he can score, but, I, you know, when he gets the ball at the high post or, around the three-point line, and he kind of gets in that triple threat and he surveys the floor. You know, he's not looking for someone to pass to, even if someone's open. He's just looking for his lane because that dude is going to shoot the ball. So, yeah. you know, there's some habits that are not habits. They are just part of your basketball DNA, and that's just the way he's going to be. And that's just how some guys are. And sometimes you can get with it if you're good enough, and he's just not good enough to be that kind of a, a player. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the guy who can ostensibly put up good stats, but they're nowhere near as good as they look. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I agree with what you said also that he's like, I, I think he would be like a negative asset in a, in a bigger deal for more salary, but definitely he is salary. The Pistons don't have a lot of big salary on this team. They can trade away. I mean, they'll have Boyan, but but that, that's the only really route I see to Marvin Bagley ending up off his team. And even if Victor isn't, even if the Pistons don't get lucky enough to get that first overall pick, and they get that first overall pick, of course, Wiseman and and Bagley, you know, what happens with them becomes largely irrelevant. But Correct, yeah. Um, but, you know, even just having he and Wiseman on the team at the same time, they have such like a gross degree of overlap <laughs> that it's like, <laughs> I don't think that both of them can can stay on this team. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Certainly. Yeah. So uh, back to the good. So the vets, uh, Alec Burks and Boyan Bogdanovich, who I feel like you can make the argument for the two best players in the team this season. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's that's true for Boyan specifically. I mean, we talked about his limitations defensively, but I think he still is, you know, one of the 10 best shooters in the league. Um, and I think his 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 game was stretched to its limits this year. Um, I think we learned a lot about what he's capable of, which is good. You know, my thing with this is that 
I don't think they should trade him because he is a good player and they do not have many of those. But, uh, you know, I just wonder if a guy who's in his early 30s, you know, even if he hasn't played since he was, you know, 14 years old playing professional basketball in Europe, I, I just wonder how much of a drop off are we going to see from him as this team continues to build. And, uh, you know, that's my concern. But I think shooters are going to keep shooting and be valuable regardless. And I think you take him and you put him on the floor with Ivy and Cade, and then you find the right front court pairing and you've got a team that's going to score very, very well, whether it will defend is another question, but you know, to be where the Pistons want to be in terms of competing and winning some games, you know, if you can outscore people, you can be good enough to compete for the play in and that's what they want to do. So I think that's the next logical step because they're not going to take the worst defense and make it the best defense overnight, you know? Yeah. I mean, Boyan, I knew he was a good scorer, but my thought was, you know, he's coming onto the Pistons. Like I, I did uh, a trade recap episode actually with, with Jack Kelly back in, I think it was back in September. And, and what I said was, okay, he put up like close to 20 points per game with the Jazz, but he didn't have, you know, he didn't have anywhere near as much offensive responsibility there. You know, he had, Correct, he had yeah. Donovan Mitchell, for example, who was occupying most of the attention and, and he was free just to take a lot of open threes. So I, I said, I wouldn't expect that he'd score that many points in the Pistons. Instead, he got a bigger role and he proved to be like a genuine three-level scorer, like very, very effective. He mm-hmm. was bad on defense, but as a scorer, he was very impressive. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I didn't think he could handle as much as he did. So on, on one hand, that is good. Um, but I think, you know, like I said, in the end, I think we know what he's capable of and what he's not capable of. And, uh, you know, I, I think I just wonder how he fits with this team as they like, you know, because everyone says, let's just bring him off the bench. But like bad teams don't bring twenty three million dollar players off the bench. That's just not the way, you know, to not to use a money ball term. But that's not how you buy wins. <laughs> um, so I'm just interested to see how he fits into this as they try and reshape things. But um you know, he, regardless, he's good. And I think Alec Burks was fine. He's good. He would play for anybody. He would be good on any of these playoff teams. Um, I just wonder how the heck he's going to like, uh, you know, the the thing I, I'm very interested to see is, you know, with Alec Burks, Killian Hayes, Ivy, Cade, you know, those four, there are not many minutes remaining for those four players. Yeah. You talk about the two guys who are starting. So, I don't know how that's going to work. It wouldn't surprise me if Burks ended up being more of a backup point guard and they moved on from Killian or something. I don't know. That's just the thing that I thought of a lot when he was playing. And now I'm kind of thinking about it again now that, you know, we've reached the end of this. Yeah, I think that Burks is the perfect veteran to bring off the bench. I mean, you can flex him up to small forward as well. I mean, he's played a split. He's got decent size. He's played a fair number of minutes at the the position throughout his career. Of course, he can easily be overpowered by by Mm -hmm. certain power forwards in the league. But He's just like the perfect bench veteran who can come out there and create a certain amount of offense off the dribble. He's an elite floor spacer. Like he, he's a savvy veteran. He works hard. He's yeah. a decent enough defender. You know, he can make some passes. Like Tom Thibodeau tried to make him point guard and that didn't work. But um, he can give you he yeah. can give you enough of a yeah. like veteran running the offense thing, but he's not gonna go out there and create offense for others. No. So like I think that's something that like you look at the Pistons basically starting, you know, a pair of uh point guard ish guys in Kate and Ivy. I think the good thing is that Alec Burks can play with both of them and he can occupy a ball handler role if they want to score, or he can be the scorer if they're going to be the on ball creator. So like that, he's just so versatile offensively that I think, you know, they'd be crazy to, to not really lean into that next year as they try and actually do something. Yeah. Even if nothing else, I mean, it's just, he he provides elite shooting. 
which mm. any team can use. And definitely this team, definitely this team is your, we're just desperately hoping to have better floor spacing for, for Cade and for Ivy. And yeah, when it comes to Boyan, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that his, his contract in 2024, 2025 is only guaranteed for what, like 3 million, I think three or 4 million. Yeah. So it's, it's just next season when he's definitely under contract and yeah, I think they just want him because he can score. I think that if you put him on on the floor with, I mean, who knows who's going to end up being the other forward. Uh, I, I don't think, I, I think the team would prefer not to go into next season with Isaiah Stewart starting a power forward. But let's just say like that's that the best possible outcome, in my opinion, at least happens and the Pistons pick up Jeremy Grant. Then, uh, you know, the, the higher the quality of the defense around him, the less his defensive is an issue. Um, but, you know, it, it's going to hurt no matter what. You bring him off the bench. Um, I agree it's unlikely to happen. But at the same time, it's like you give him a lesser role than the than the impacts the the negative impact of his defense is amplified. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's move on to the final. I'd have to call it negative of the season. I know it's been a little bit controversial, but in my opinion, it was a disappointing season for Killian Hayes. Uh, well, I, I I can see that fully. Um, I would say it was a positive season for Killian Hayes because my expectations were as low as humanly possible. <laughs> um, so when you expect nothing, anything is good. Uh, and I would say that that's kind of the situation with him. Um, you know, obviously, I think overall, you look at the numbers, people are really, there's there's a very loud um, vocal minority of Killian Hayes fans out there who are, you know, I think attached to him because he's a kid who kind of was the first piece of this rebuild and he wanted to do well. And I understand that stuff. And, you know, obviously I want him to be a good basketball player. That would be superb. But, you know, I just, you know, I feel like we've seen enough and we've seen him get all these different off seasons of work. And I just, I don't always see the fruits of the labor until this year. He did show obviously a lot more refined game when it comes to attacking opposing defenses and trying to score and things of that nature. And that was, you know, obviously good. I think his defense is always solid. I don't think he's the lockdown defender we hoped he would be but i think he is a productive one on a team that did not have very many um and i think his playmaking obviously some of the passes he makes you can see that he's an nba caliber passer but i think to be successful in this league you have to either be a good shooter a great finisher or an athletic guy who can score in that mid-range and he does score in the mid-range but like i don't think that that's a sustainable lifestyle for him in the NBA, especially as Cade Cunningham, who is the king of the mid-range on this team, and Boyan Bogdanovich, who loves the mid-range, and Jaden Ivey, who loves, you know, there's a lot of guys who are trying to get the ball in that spot, and if he's out there and he's not able to just, you know, get to the 15-foot area and, you know, do his little pull-up, I don't know what he does, because he doesn't get to the rim and score. He can score when he gets there, but he just doesn't get close enough, mm-hmm. and I don't think he's, you know, the jump shot, I, 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 some days he goes out there and he hits two threes. Sometimes he goes two weeks without hitting one. And I'm just like, you know, at some point, you know, you've taken what, how many, 200 or what, 525 threes. And he's at 27% for his career. Yeah. Like that's a healthy diet of shots. And like I said, a number of off seasons of work to get there. And I just don't see the, you know, I don't see the fruits of it. And, and I, and I mentioned this earlier and I've made a point of it is that, He's the guy when he is out there as a starter or the main, you know, playmaker, you can see that his play picks up, his energy is better, his mentality is aggressive. But when he's coming off the bench or when he's not that guy, he doesn't have the same energy. So next year, I mean, like I said, with Burks being there and Cade coming back, like 
there's maybe 10 or 12 minutes there for him if he's around. And I just wonder, like, are you going to be the same guy in 12 minutes per game as you are when you play 30 minutes and you get to shoot 15, 16 times and you have the ball in your hands? Because, you know, that's a different thing. And, like, it goes back to the Sadiq Bay thing is, you know, do you want to fill your role or do you want to be the guy that you always dreamed of being? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's had to make a break point where he's got to make that decision or else he's not going to be here for the long haul. Yeah, I agree. I think that there are certain skills he just needs to improve. If he wants to be in the NBA for the long haul at all. So I, I agree. If going in on the basis of last, last seasons, like expectations based on last season's performance and he was the horrendous last season, he did improve. So what hurts me about Killian is that there's definitely a good NBA player in there. Super smart, like a really high IQ, a really good passer, like great vision, still needs to work on. I mean, he manages to get away without passing with his right hand. And if he could just shoot threes, I mean, he wouldn't be the point guard. I know the Pistons brought him in ostensibly as the point guard of the future. Uh, even then, I, unless he can actually attack the rim, which he is not even willing to try to do. I, I just don't see it. He can't break down defenses right now. But if he could just become like a high 30s three-point shooter on high volume, NBA player, absolutely. Maybe not a starter, but a long-term rotation player, even on a playoff team. But I, that's a that's a big if. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think I've I've made the comparison before. I mean, I... I don't remember what year it was. Maybe it was last year or the year before that even, but like trying to figure out, um, you know, what is, what does Killian Hayes look like as an NBA player? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know what the answer to that is because I can't figure out if he even is one yet, but like, you know, then I was thinking, can he be, can he go out there and serve the Marcus smart role of being a defensive minded guard? Who's not a point guard. He's not a shooting guard, but he goes out there and, you know, impacts the game in ways that, you know, supersede his role. And I think people are still clinging to that a little bit. And Marcus Smart was a terrible shooter who got to being just bad. He shoots, um, he's a decent catch and shoot guy. He shoots about 36% on catch and shoots. But my thing with Smart, and this is not a shot at Killian, this is more of a credit to Marcus Smart, who's always like my, God, He if the Pistons hadn't traded Ben Gordon for Corey Maggette, uh-huh. he would have been a Piston. And he, yeah. But... You know, he has some sort of innate ability to just make his team better. Boston is just better because of Marcus Smart. The Detroit Pistons are not just better because of Killian Hayes and all the intangibles he brings. So it's not a fair comparison either way. Um, but I think you're right. If he makes threes, he has a role. He he has a career. If he does not make threes, I don't see how he can how this is going to work for him no matter where. And I mean, some people will say like, oh man. If they let Killian Hayes walk, I fear he's going to be like the next Spencer Dinwiddie. But like it, it's I don't I don't think that that's something you can worry about at this point. Spencer Dinwiddie was a different situation than Killian Hayes. Killian Hayes got all yeah. the opportunity in the world to show you he was good, and he struggled to do it. Yep. Dinwiddie was the opposite. He never got the opportunity to show what he could do. And once he left, it was like, oh shit, he's actually good. Mm-hmm. So you know, apples and oranges. I'm not really concerned about that. I think. You know, I'm just interested to see how he fits in the future because, like I said, there's a lot of changing. And I mean, especially if they get Scoot Henderson. I mean, he's done. He's out of here. That's oh, yeah. But like, in general, I just wonder if if there's even a real productive spot for him to be a top eight or nine guy of this team next year. A bad team. You know, a bad business team at that. Yeah. Yeah, there's just there's no place in the league these days for a guy who is a massive offensive minus as a scorer. I mean, the NBA these days is just so intolerant to that weakness. Yeah, when it comes to Marcus Smart, I, I agree it's not an apt comparison. I mean, 
smart. He brings this kind of combination of being like this beefy dude who can defend four positions to being like in like the top 1% of hard workers in the NBA. The guy is greasy. Like uh, he, he will put his body on the line anywhere. Uh, and, and you're right. He brings all these intangibles. Killian, meanwhile, is un- is afraid of any contact on the offensive ends. Yeah, I mean, and like, Luka is, is not the defender either that's smartest. No, it's like, you know, I think the to be like a Marcus Smart, you've got to be more of like a Lugane Dort in, a, in, or, in Oklahoma City, who's a yeah. guy who just, you know, has the ability to change the game on the defensive end, whereas Killian Hayes is just a good defender, which is fine. You know, but you need to be able to do that to be able to play. But I think, um, I, you know, we're reaching a point where, like, you got to be able to do stuff that helps the team win. And I think mm-hmm. he does that at times, but I, I, I just, I don't know how. And like I said, it all goes back to my thing with him is I understand that you like playing basketball more when you are the guy. But he needs to figure out if he wants to play basketball in the NBA as not the guy. And if that's not going to be the case, it's not going to happen here because he is already the number three, you know, point guard. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we'll see how that works. Yeah, we will. It's definitely a big summer for him. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we're just about reaching the end here. You have uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, no, um, you know, a lot of fun to unpack this this mess of a season. Um, yeah. You know, I'm I'm excited for the playoffs to really watch teams that are actually enjoyable and good at basketball. <laughs> um, Fair and I think, and I think, uh, you know, with the with the coaching thing, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, uh, you know, once the lottery balls are chosen, how this goes, because I think the Pistons are going to have a pretty good job as is. And I think if they luck out in May and get the number one pick, they will have the job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think they've got a bright future. I just don't know if it's uh, next year or two years or more. Um, but I think people who expect them to be like a playoff contender next year are going to be disappointed barring uh, Victor Wimanyama, you know, arriving and being good off the bat. Yeah, it would be a huge leap, like an unprecedented leap the Pistons to, to go from where they are right now to a playoff team, especially in what I think is going to be an ultra-competitive East. But uh, it'll be interesting to see. And we definitely get a big offseason ahead of us, too. So in any case, Brady, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Awesome. No, thank you, man. I appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Hope we can do it again sometime. So uh, that'll be it, folks. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. Catch you in the next episode.